The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And it's certainly the Swedish perspective that Russia is a long-term threat and we cannot disarm and take down our guard even when this war is over. And that's why it's doubly important to have Ukraine within NATO to prevent this from ever happening again. And there's unanimity around that, that Ukraine belongs in NATO and that will only contribute to European security and transatlantic security. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th, 2023. The NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, just wrapped up, and the big news is that Sweden is in and Ukraine is not. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio from Warsaw is Eric Adamson of the Atlantic Council and the Swedish Defense Association. He is a Swedish defense policy analyst who observed the NATO summit and joined me to discuss the two big things that happened. The Swedish resolution of the dispute with Turkey that impeded Swedish NATO accession until now and the frustrating failure of NATO to set a path for Ukrainian NATO membership. We talked about the dispute between Sweden and Turkey and the nuanced manner in which it was resolved. We talked about whether the Ukrainians are being too demanding and should be more grateful for Western support. And we talked about what the specific areas are in which Sweden will contribute to NATO's capabilities. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th. Eric Adamson on the NATO Summit. So, Eric, I want to start with Sweden because, uh, particularly for in terms of the actual change to NATO, this is the biggest news of the summit. Who won here, Sweden or or Turkey? Well, we can definitely say that NATO won, truly. Uh, Sweden will make a large contribution to the security of the alliance as a whole. And this has been a long process. It's been going on for over a year now. And, you know, in the end, it was inevitable that Sweden would join. It was just a matter of time. Sweden is a highly capable partner. But 
Turkey, at the end of the summit, said we cannot ratify just yet. Parliament will soon be out of session. So we still do have to wait until October when the Turkish parliament reconvenes. So it will be quite, perhaps not quite as a relaxing summer as many Swedes had hoped, but this is just a matter of time. And a new agreement was signed and we're still, we're working towards it, but we got the green light. Yeah. And so I'm interested in the Swedish reaction to to the Turkish, the long Turkish opposition. Uh, it was obviously somewhat unexpected. How was this taken in Sweden and what are the longer term implications for Swedish-Turkish relations? So this has been very much a two-way street. And particularly in the weeks leading up to the summit, we saw both Swedish public opinion shifting and also the understanding from the Swedish side about Turkey's security concerns. So the former foreign minister, Anlin, said just last week, well, we actually hadn't taken the terrorism concerns of Turkey as seriously as we should have in the past. And on the public side, we've had a series of Quran burnings in Sweden and freedom of speech is somewhat of a holy grail itself within Sweden, much like in the United States. But even there, we saw public opinion shift to now a majority of the Swedish public thinks, well, maybe it shouldn't be allowed to burn religious books. So Sweden has come a long way, as has Turkey, in understanding one another and where they're coming from. And that's how we got to the summit in Vilnius, where a new agreement was signed, where Sweden and Turkey will continue to work on combating terrorism. A new format at the minister level has been established uh, between Turkey, Sweden, and NATO to make sure that work will continue on this and taking everyone's security concerns seriously. So you mentioned earlier, and everybody kind of mentions as a, a sort of obligatory matter when discussing Sweden and NATO, that Sweden has a highly capable military uh, and, you know, has a sort of unusual set of capabilities and sophistications to bring to the table in joining NATO. Talk a little bit about that. What is the you know, what? what is the unique strengths or the unusual strengths of the Swedish military in joining NATO? So Sweden has a large military industrial base that is highly modern. And just to give a few examples, we have the Saab Gripen, or the Gripen, which is a highly modern Swedish fighter jet that is completely interoperable with NATO. And it is already used by the Czech Republic, and Hungary. So there are NATO nations already flying this plane. We also have submarines, which are specifically designed for the Baltic Sea and Baltic conditions. And we have highly advanced other maritime capabilities with our corvettes. So this will contribute both in the air and underwater and on the surface to Baltic security and NATO's collective security. Uh, and that's what our Baltic partners are really looking forward to. 
whereas the Baltic Sea perhaps was once uh, once a buffer to Russia, it is now going to be a strategic link between Sweden and the Baltic states and the rest of of the alliance. Sweden's long-term neutrality was I think something like 200 years old. It had a it has a really long history. Talk a little bit about how Sweden got from you know that sort of strategic orientation which survived the whole Cold War, which survived World War II, to looking at the Russian military invasion of Ukraine and saying it is actually time for us to align formally and militarily, not just philosophically and and economically with the West. Sure. So when we hear that Sweden is ending 200 years of military non-alignment, and we say military non-aligned because Sweden isn't neutral politically in any sense. It was clearly aligned with the West and was a member of the European Union. But when we hear 200 years suddenly changing, well, it was actually a series of many small steps that brought Sweden closer to NATO over several decades since the end of the Cold War. Sweden truly sought out the closest possible relationship to NATO without actually joining until until now, until February 24, 2022. And is that is that different from Finland? Or or was that a kind of a sort of the posture of the Nordic non-aligned nations as a group? It was similar to Finland. Uh, whereas Finland did have a so-called NATO option, the option to join NATO if they so chose. Uh, Sweden joining NATO was still very much a political hot potato in many ways. And even during the accession, prior to the lead up of deciding to join, was a much more political process and political debate than perhaps Finland, which took a much more pragmatic stance. And it was Finland that was driving this whole process. Sweden and Finland would never join separately, but it was always assumed Sweden being the bigger partner, the bigger country, that would be leading this process. But in fact, it was Finland that really took the initiative, somewhat to Sweden's surprise, which is what really pushed Sweden to also join. Because joining separately was just never an option, and it was always going to be hand-in-hand. And we were going hand-in-hand for a very, very long time. Finland joined first, and we're coming in right after them now. All right. So I, I actually interrupted you. You were talking about the evolution and the the many steps to it, this being the final one. From an American perspective, we didn't see some of the, you know, you had to be pretty deep in the Atlantic Alliance conversation to see any of the other incremental steps. But walk us through them. Sweden famously neutral in in the Cold War. What are the incremental developments that brought us to a situation where they could join NATO and yet already have fully interoperable aircraft. Well, even during the Cold War, Sweden gave the perception that it was neutral, but it was always quite clear that it was on the side of the United States. And Sweden was very good at maintaining security, cooperation, perhaps a bit under the table, even during the Cold War, whether it was 
intelligence sharing. Sweden even had somewhat of a self-declared policy of being under the United States' own nuclear umbrella. Sweden did have its own nuclear program up until the early 1970s, which we, we, we got rid of for various geopolitical reasons. But even then, during the Cold War, Sweden was solidly within the West. And now, in the post-Cold War era, Sweden, both amongst with other NATO allies, such, such as the United States and Norway, have created a series of defense cooperation agreements in the Nordics, particularly between with Finland and Norway and Denmark, joint defense planning. But there were always certain barriers as non-NATO members when it came to well, defense planning and also intelligence sharing. We were close, but there was always a barrier by being non-aligned. And now joining NATO, those final barriers between fully integrating disappear. All right. So the the big success of the summit is Sweden, or at least uh, uh, getting Sweden and Turkey's uh, executive leadership on the same page. The big failure of the summit, it seems to me, is of having Ukraine and the NATO leadership on the same page as to Ukraine's ultimate accession. Talk about uh, that. What was the atmosphere at the summit with respect to Ukraine's apparently quite reasonable search for a timeline of entrance and a path to to accession and uh, the resistance it received, particularly from the Biden administration? Yeah, so there was a palpable sense of disappointment in Vilnius. Part of that perhaps was expectations management of what was realistic. And there was the quite odd formulation of NATO will be in a position to offer an invitation when conditions are met and uh, allies agree which is very vague. On the other hand, the Ukraine-NATO Council was established, which plans to take concrete steps in bringing, taking practical steps in bringing Ukraine closer to NATO membership. And so while the language on paper might not seem a whole lot different than 2008, is Ukraine actually any closer to be receiving an invitation? There are practical steps that are actively being taken, which is different than post-2008, where not a whole lot happened. Now there is active push from allies. And just to name one Swedish example, Sweden and Ukraine at the summit signed a defense procurement agreement, which will help Ukraine increase its capabilities of purchasing military equipment uh, from Sweden. It's working on practical matters, it's working on expertise, and also just helping Ukraine develop the competencies to buy the military equipment it needs now and in the future. So this is just one example of a practical step that is being taken to bring Ukraine closer to the alliance, perhaps changing those conditions actively. So NATO, NATO is a, has agency here and can take those steps. Do you have a sense of other than the American administration, which feels cautious about Ukraine 
accession for reasons of escalation. You know, we know that the the Turkish government, partly by way of drawing a clear contrast with its position toward Sweden, very publicly welcomed the idea of Ukrainian membership. Do you have a sense of how the different NATO countries are arrayed on this question? Is the Biden administration speaking for the majority of the countries when it says, hey, we're not ready for this yet? We don't want to draw Ukraine into into the alliance at a time when it's in an active shooting war with 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 Russia, as that would presumably obligate uh, Western or other alliance members to participate in the conflict more directly. Or is this a situation where the the Biden administration is really holding back the rest of the uh, alliance? Where where are the other big members on this question? I think that is the big divide within NATO of the appetite for taking some risk on Ukraine and how escalation is viewed and the risk of ex- escalation. So you have the one camp, which was actively saying during the summit, we cannot succumb to Russian nuclear blackmail. And we should also remind Putin that we also have nukes. So in some ways, seeing this as an empty threat from the Russian side, because the West and NATO also has deterrence. Then there are other nations which aren't willing to take that risk and see offering Ukraine NATO membership now would drag NATO into direct conflict with Russia. And I don't think anyone is advocating, or not many are advocating to give Ukraine NATO membership now, but it is a matter of when. Everyone agrees, yes, Ukraine should join, but how and when? And is this a neat Eastern European countries minus Hungary versus uh, Western Europeans countries and the United States, which are more cautious, or is it more scattered than that? I think you could draw rough contours around an east-west divide, which is also understandable. And especially from a Ukrainian perspective, essentially the worst has already happened. And there was some criticism of Zelensky coming into the summit of his brusque nature, but he's coming from an environment where missiles and rockets are falling on his citizens every day. And there is a sense of urgency. And that urgency is perhaps not sensed as much the further west you go within the alliance. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, so I noticed that the a member of the current British government basically said, we want to hear some gratitude from uh, from Ukraine rather than just more, more, more and sort of criticizing what we don't do. To what extent was that a sentiment in Vilnius? And to what extent should I understand that as a, a kind of you know a, a, the sort of thing that politicians say in their in their own capitals for domestic consumption, but it's you know in Vilnius everybody understands that Zelensky's job is to say thanks, but more, and not really to emphasize the thanks part. So it, w- it was very clear in Vilnius the amount of gratitude that Europe was expressing towards Ukraine for not only defending. Ukraine and Ukrainians, but also defending Europe and our democracies. Ukraine is under a very different circumstance with rockets and missiles raining down on them, so they have a different sense of urgency. And perhaps they don't think about saying thanks in that moment, but it really isn't upon them to give thanks either. It's in all of our interests, both for Ukraine and Europe, to do all we can to support Ukraine and make sure that Ukraine can win. Uh, I can understand perhaps from some European publics, and this might be what the Brits were hinting at, is we are doing a lot and we are doing this for you and for us, but maybe a thank you from every now and then would be appreciated. These are minor frictions and a matter of communication, but no one can have any doubt that both sides are equally thankful for everything that they were doing together. Yeah, I mean, I I just think if you asked British defense officials uh, or politicians two years ago whether they would make the investment that they've made in financial terms and expenditures to destroy the Russian military, uh, they all would have lined up to do it. And so I'm not sure that uh, gratitude to them or to us is the right framework. I think the right framework is countries acting in their interests cooperatively, and part of their interests are values affinities. But part of their interests are, you know, this is a really good deal for everybody concerned. And uh, I mean, I rot except the Ukrainians who are getting, you know, their country destroyed. But for everybody who's investing in the defense of Ukraine, it's an incredible investment. Of course. And it's something about uh, 5% of U.S. military spending. And to spend 5% of your military budget to destroy ru- the Russian military's capacity and capability to wage war long in the future, that's a pretty good deal. But it also must be said that even if Russia is tied down currently, and it's certainly the Swedish perspective, that Russia is a long-term threat, and we cannot disarm and take down our guard even when this war is 
over. And that's why it's doubly important to have Ukraine within NATO to prevent this from ever happening again. And there's unanimity around that, that Ukraine belongs in NATO and that will only contribute to European security and transatlantic security. So you um, mentioned earlier changes in Swedish public opinion vis-a-vis Turkey. I want to zoom that out a little bit and talk about Swedish public opinion vis-a-vis NATO more generally. As you mentioned, the accession process was more politically contentious in Sweden than it was in Finland, where it seemed like a flip had, a switch had been flipped and all of a sudden everybody now supported joining NATO. In Sweden, it was a little bit more complicated. Has that resolved itself? How are the major political parties, are any of the major political parties opposed to this step? Or is this now become a matter of political consensus in Sweden? So there are political parties that are formally opposed to NATO membership, but they're also recognizing the fact that Sweden will be a NATO ally. And once that is a reality, well, they also have to adjust and adapt to the new reality. And many of the political parties are going under a learning process and realizing, oh, NATO is also not just a military alliance, but a political alliance. And if we can influence uh, NATO's policy, pushing Swedish foreign policy and upholding Swedish values within within the alliance, then that is something we could take an active role in. And that's even some of the more NATO critical or skeptical parties that are having that realization. So it was, as you, as you know, it's quite a political debate because it was such an identity issue. Sweden's identity was that of a neutral or military non-aligned nation, and that's how Sweden was best defended uh, by maintaining political or military non-alignment. But the reality changed, new security climate in, in Europe, and there was a broad consensus amongst the major parties that Sweden is best defended within NATO. So in the United States, as you know, NATO skepticism is largely confined to the far left and the Trumpist right. That is, uh, there's a historical left suspicion of, of any overseas military commitments, which uh, the left has historically seen as imperialistic. And then there is a, a kind of right populist opposition to you know, sort of committing to spill blood and treasure on behalf of uh, Europeans. What is the political valence of the Swedish NATO opposition? Is this a left thing, a right thing, a historical, we've always been non-aligned thing? Uh, What do the NATO skeptical groups have in common? So the far-right Sweden Democrats were opposed to NATO membership, but funnily enough, it was their flipping on the issue which gave the parliament a majority in favor of NATO membership. And the parties that were opposed were the far-left party and the Greens. And the Swedish Greens are very different than, say, the German Greens. The Swedish Greens are much more towards the left as opposed to the Germans who are a little more centrist. 
But as I mentioned, even they are now coming to the realization that they are waking up in a new reality and will have to work within a new NATO framework. When the application was first being discussed, it was the Social Democrats that were in large part opposed, but they changed and had internal discussions within a matter of weeks, which was quite a amazing turnaround in such a short amount of time. That said, defense issues and reducing defense spending and cashing in on the peace dividend, that is something that all political parties in Sweden have done. And now everyone realizes that that was a mistake in the post-Cold War era to de-arm and reduce military spending. And, but then now there's bipartisan consensus across the board that Sweden needs to increase its defense spending and increase its security. Uh, just how to do that within NATO or outside of NATO was the sticking point uh, at that time during the beginnings of the accession process. So it's fair to say that the Swedish opposition to NATO membership roughly tracks the American one. That is, there's a uh, there's a far left component to it and a far right component to it, and the arguments, though particular to the Swedish situation, are kind of similar to the ones that Americans are familiar with. Yeah, and it's not uh, black and white, and Swedes are also, and Europeans generally, are acutely aware of the domestic situation in the United States, and I think that's not something that all Americans realize, is how closely Europeans are watching the domestic political climate in the United States, and what it would mean... We're if, a great spectator sport. Yeah. Uh, if, if there was a change in the administration, or even if the U.S. really focuses a whole lot more on China, that is quite a discussion here. How can European allies show that they're also contributing to defense in the Pacific? And how do we do that best? That's conversations being had in Sweden and a- across Europe. So let's go back to Turkey for a minute. My understanding of the Turkish-Swedish dispute that led to this standoff was that it caught Sweden very much by surprise. Um, You mentioned that there have been accommodations reached or at least verbal understandings reached. Describe for us the what we know about the specific accommodations that Sweden has made to Turkey's concerns and how these things will be dealt with in the future, other than verbal, you know, assurances that we take terrorism seriously. Right. And that has been Turkey's sticking point, that they want to see Sweden begin implementing the measures that were agreed to in the tripart memorandum between Sweden, Finland, and Turkey at the Madrid summit. And there has been movement. Sweden had actually changed its constitution that just took effect in June that would strengthen its terror laws to combat terrorism. And the first case was tried shortly before the Vilnius summit of a man was convicted for financing the PKK. And he will be sentenced or has been sentenced to four and a half years in jail and with a possible extradition to Turkey at the end of that sentence. So that is one very concrete step that has been taken to really show that Sweden is taking Turkish 
terrorism concerns seriously, particularly as it in regards to to the PKK. Sweden has a fairly substantial uh, Kurdish community. How has it reacted to this shift in in Swedish policy by way of accommodating their kind of historic enemy? Sweden, by its own admission, says that they did not take the terrorism concerns as in regards to PKK seriously enough. And this is perhaps just coming to a better understanding of Turkey's own security climate. And Foreign Minister Bielström made mention that, well, this is actually in Sweden's interest to take this more seriously and cooperate with Turkish authorities between Turkish and Swedish police, because there are people in Turkey who are conducting operations for organized crime in Sweden. And Sweden has also come to this realization that this is actually a good thing for Swedish security as well. But Turkey is, among other things, famous for using, you know, terrorism concerns as a mechanism of political repression, uh, particularly involving, uh, you know, Gulenists, um, but also involving Kurds. And I'm curious whether there are concerns that, you know, taking this more seriously could end up meaning uh, allowing Turkey to use the Swedish legal system to go after its political enemies in, you know, abroad, much the way it, you know, has tried to pressure the United States over time to go after Gulen and his followers to go after people it merely alleges to be Gulenists. And this is a hard red line for Sweden and something that they've made very clear to the Turks, that Sweden is a rule of laws. We have due process and we won't, Sweden will not extradite anyone that they would fear for their safety in Turkish hands. And there wouldn't be any sort of retrials for people who Turkey claimed that were terrorists, but had already under, undergone a court case in Sweden. So upholding Swedish due process, the rule of law, and also safety concerns is something that Sweden will not budge on. And this is why these conversations were so difficult, because Turkey was asking of Sweden something that it legally could not do and would not do. It's an interesting problem for the Turks, because they have this like one point of leverage, which is the accession process. But then after that, you know, it's not it's not clear what what additional points of of pressure they have with respect to this. You know, you you've described the Swedish reaction to to Turkey as a sort of a learning process that has caused a lot of Swedes to take Turkish concerns more more seriously. Is there also anger at the Turks for or at the at the Erdogan government for the sort of obstreperousness with which Turkey has exercised its muscle here? I wouldn't call it anger, but I would say amongst the Swedish public, this was certainly why there was so much resistance to seemingly caving into Turkish demands and who many people in Sweden perceive as a dictator or at least an authoritarian. And that's why Sweden rightly so took a very principled stance on 
not just principle, but legal stance on some of these issues that Sweden has its own interests that it will not just simply cave to, to Turkey and, and Erdogan's demands. And it wasn't anger, but it was a certain sense of perhaps pride in the Swedish system. And that was something that was non-negotiable and needed to be protected and to be stood up for. And that's why this process did take such a long time. But in the end, Swedish succession, as I mentioned at the start, was inevitable because it was in Turkey's interest as well to let Sweden into the alliance. Finally, Sweden made one additional commitment here, which was to uh, support at some level anyway, Turkey's uh, renewed interest in joining the EU, uh, which seemed to come out of left field right at the end. What do we know about what Sweden committed itself to here and how consequential do you think that will be? This is, uh, from the Turkish perspective, writing a historical wrong. The EU accession process was put on hold after the attempted coup and the circumstances around that were, were quite murky. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Swedish accession to NATO for Turkey. And of course, they're going to take full advantage of it and get everything that they can in this moment and use every source of leverage to right perceived wrongs in the past. And nothing concretely was agreed to. It was reopening the process and supporting Turkey in its movement towards the European Union. And those are huge numbers of lists, a huge list of items that need to be fulfilled in order to do so, perhaps even more so than NATO. So Sweden, perhaps opening a door for Turkey, just like Turkey and NATO had the open door for Sweden. We are going to leave it there. Eric Adamson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer is the one and only Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, if you are not yet a material supporter of Lawfare and you listen to an ad on this podcast, I have an offer for you that will just dazzle you. You can come into the light and be a person who supports Lawfare, and you can get rid of that ad on one in one shot. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare and become a material supporter. You know, it is a federal crime to provide material support for terrorism, and now it's a crime in Sweden too. It is not a crime to provide material support for podcasting. In fact, it is a virtue. So go do it. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.